We're in 2 Timothy. Steve and I have been blessed to be able to preach through this. And here we are. We've got to finally to chapter 3, where we get to hear Paul's words of warning to a young pastor and a growing congregation. This is God's word for us this morning. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasing, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Please pray with me. God, our Father, your word is rich, and it gives truths that are unsearchable, joys that are amazing, as it describes your amazing loves and the bountiful benefits that come in the gospel. And your word also gives warnings. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit would aliven our hearts and minds to heed well to hear this warning and take it to heart. I pray that the Spirit would be about this work this morning so that our ears can hear and our minds can know the truth of your gospel. For the sake of Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Having heard God's word this morning, I want to start with the application question. Haven't done this in a while. What do we do with warnings? How do we use them? Do we usually heed them? How well do we listen to the warning? And as soon as I'm asking this, hopefully some of you are thinking, well, there's a lot of variables. It depends. And that's not just the easy answer, but sometimes it does. Let me give you a hypothetical. Maybe this can help us hear what is being warned, and to who, whom it's coming, the warner and the warnee, if you will. In other words, if you're going down your neighborhood and a, a man comes towards you in a suit with a helmet and an axe in his hand, and he says, don't go past me, there's a fire, what would you do with that warning? Would you take out your camera and want to get a picture of it because you know somebody's there? Would it go, well, I mean, how much fire? Like a lot of fire, a little fire, is it still fire? Is it still burning? Or would would you kind of be a little more skeptical or cynical and be like, well, you know, 
I've seen people with your costume on before. It happens to be candy harvesting October 31st. So I'm not so sure how much I'm going to take your words of wisdom. Whatever. How much more would you take heed to this man's warning if he came out smelling of smoke with ash draped all over his fireman's uniform with water drenched from the hose that he had been trying to put out this fire, maybe pleading with you, urging you not to take another step, would you heed that warning then? I ask these questions because I think we, we need to take seriously the Scripture's warning. Even when we think they're a little more distant, whether that is in a historical context or the people to whom these warnings were addressed, but we need to take these warnings seriously. So this morning, I want to help us understand the warning that Paul is giving Timothy and this young church in Ephesus because it's significant and it's just important for us as well. So I want to give us three layers of this warning. First, the warnings of a corrupt character. The warnings that appearances aren't everything and the warnings that come with what methods or tactics are these foolish, false teachers going to use. The warnings of corrupt character, the appearances aren't everything, and the tactics of fools. Now, I give this last point, I want to give it away a little bit, that the point that Paul is aiming for is to actually give us some assurance that we should listen to this warning because of how fools will not succeed. And the way that he starts us getting to this idea is he's saying, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. As soon as we see that phrase, last days, we need to put that into a very important category. Paul and many of the other New Testament writers use this phrase in a way to say, these days that will show the end of time, that will be coming Will that show the, the time that Jesus comes finally? We're in the last days, in other words. We've been in the last days since Peter, in Acts chapter 2, preached the sermon hinting that what Joel prophesied when the Spirit would be poured out among men, women, young, old, slaves, and free, when the Spirit would come, we would be in the last days. That's happened. It was the conclusion of the old days, not the old and golden days, but those days, and now we're in these days that we're waiting, we're urgently, eagerly waiting for the fulfillment of all time when Christ will come again. Paul's also mentioned this in his first letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4.1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, Some will depart the faith and devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. He's, again, put this same time frame, the last days. He's called it the latter times, which we're living in still. And what is the warning in these last times? That there will come times of difficulty. What's difficult about the times? Some of us look around us and see there's difficulty still, and and we think of Maybe uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 22, the, the wars and rumors of wars, the earthquakes and the rumblings and those kind of things. Those are still true. But what Paul is hinting at here, the warning that he's giving Timothy, 
is that there will be times of difficulties and the difficult things, the very next phrase in verse 2 is people. Oh yeah, people. His warning, in other words, in the last times, the source of difficulties may not be the situation. It may not be persecution directly from outside sources. It's going to be people. And these people are going to show their difficulty in how they have corrupt character. This is not a new thing to Paul. We've tried to underline this letter that he's giving us to, to help it come across to us today in the specific context that Paul is in. He's in prison for the second and final time. He's writing to a young pastor, Timothy, in a church that Paul helped plant in Ephesus. We see this first delivered in the book of Acts in chapter 20. Or sorry, in, in 15 and 16 is when Paul plants the church. And in Acts 20 is where Paul gives the, the final words to these young elders in, in Acts 20 in, in the church in Ephesus. And he weeps over the fact that he knows he will not see these brothers again. He's written the book of Ephesus to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, sorry. And in there, he's highlighted a number of different angles on, on how hard false teachers will be. He's even put it in terms of weapons and battle. Ephesians 6, we think of the armor of God. What is the whole armor of God going to feat against? Do you remember what the very first weapon is? The belt of truth to defeat against the defeatful schemes of the devil. And in First and Second Timothy, one of the underlying themes that he's continued to warn and encourage Timothy is that hard things will come from hard people. People will use deceitful schemes. They'll use their words as weapons. They'll use the undermining scandal of quarrels and disagreements and controversies to undercut the significance and joy of grace in the gospel. So what is it about these people that is so corrupt in their character? This is a big, long list. And we might read through these from the beginning of uh, they will be lovers of self all the way down to they'll have an appearance of godliness. There's 19 characteristics described here. We might look at this list and go, that's, that's a lot. This is a mess. And that's part of Paul's warning. If we can summarize all of this, and then I want to break it down just a little bit, we're not going to go into all, this is not a 19-point sermon, one for each characteristic, don't worry. But each one of these is specific. And if I want to direct it, the, the goal here that Paul is trying to get at is what is corrupt about these difficult people's character? It's that, to summarize it, they have a life that is misdirected. Their loves are misguided. And because of that, at the core of their love, their heart's desires, everything else flows out of that. There, there comes vices galore, sadly, for these individuals. In other words, misguided love is sinful and it leads to other misguided sinful loves. This is the same problem that we've seen throughout the New Testament 
when Jesus specifically addresses the heart issue of Pharisees. He calls them a number of different things to try to get them to see that on the outside, they seem to be doing just fine, but the corrupt character is the problem. They're not understanding that they can't just fake things on the outside. They can't just fake it to make it. In other words, they have to see the change of heart. So here we get, if I can, three categories to put all of these characteristics in. They're lovers of self. They're self-centered. There's, they're lovers of money. They're materialistic. And they're lovers of pleasure. They're hedonistic. And all of these three are set over and against loving God. These are not new warnings these are the same warnings that we've seen sadly rehashed through the people of God's history from Moses setting down the law of the Lord, Deuteronomy 6.5. We all know it. Love the Lord, your God, with your whole heart, soul, and might. Jesus reiterates this in Matthew 22 when the, the, the rich young ruler comes and says, what do I do? What must I do to be good? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. I mention that because Paul's list here of the corrupt characters have, have misguided in their love of God. They love self, they love money, they love pleasure. And so sadly, but naturally, all the other relational ways of loving their neighbor they're also corrupt. Look at the list. They're proud, arrogant, abusive, not just to themselves. They're disobedient to their parents, clearly against another command, but this gets into more. They're ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. There's no restraint even to the fact that it becomes brutal, not loving good treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, puffed up beyond belief. If I can highlight a couple of those in the middle, we don't catch this in English because of the way that this works, but in Greek it's a little clearer from, if you see in your Bible, from disobedient to their parents all the way to not loving good. All of those characteristics in Greek are the, the word that they should be doing with the A in front of it, the opposite of what they should be doing, the opposite of obedient, the opposite of grateful, the opposite of holy. I think what Paul's trying to do to his young pastor so he can shape this young flock through his elders is to remind them, you know what is the standard of goodness, of excellence, of what's praiseworthy, you know these standards. And when you don't see them, when you, when you see the opposite of obedient to their parents, when you see the opposite of gratefulness, when you see the opposite of holiness, that should ring off big warning signs. And at some level, I hope this is a warning for us. In other words... Please don't let the fact that Paul is writing here to a young pastor absolve us of this warning. Yes, there are few in this room that are called 
to different levels of responsibility in this flock here at Hicks and Prez. All of us are called to examine our hearts and especially our character when given a warning such as this. Let me ask you this application question before we move on to the second point. If I look at this list, if I see that there's a love of anything, whether it's myself, money, pleasure, any of those things, even not loving what is good, if I put any other love above the love of God, how is that corrupting not only my character, but how that affects the relationships around me? In other words, are any loves in your life good and right things in and of themselves, but when we twist them, when we misguide them, when we elevate them above the love of God as the first and foremost, as the primary love in our life, we've replaced or displaced the love of God. That is the root of all kinds of evil. But the problem doesn't stop there. Paul goes on to warn that all of these characteristics arrive at the second point, that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. I'll let you sit on that for a second. What does it look like back then? We see plenty of examples. Paul gives the, the example of the wolf in sheep's clothing or the, the types that want to come in and deceive and start spreading these quarrelsome rumors and, and wander off into traditions and myths and celebrate other uh, holidays that aren't helpful, that aren't right, that aren't biblical. But they appear godly. They've got all their act together. They show up every service. They do the right things. They seem to care for the right things. But they're denying the very power of godliness that should be the motive and should be the enabling of their appearance of godliness. Should be their true godliness. In other words, for these false teachers, appearances are everything especially to those, as Paul's going to move on when we get to chapter 4, verse 3, to those with itching ears, they want to see that the guys, the false teachers got it all together. Look, they drive that car. They have that job. They show up with this. They seem to have their act together. Paul's warning is simple. Avoid them. If you're listening to this and you're young or if you're not sure what this might mean, do you remember that Dr. Seuss book that they made the movie, Horton Hatches the Egg? That was the book. They made the movie, Horton, Here's a Who. Forget the movie. The book was really fascinating because it has Horton the Elephant show up one day, as he was so happy to do, show up one day and he saw an egg on a nest and he wondered where the mother was. The mother bird, I think her name was Mildred, Millie, something like that. You'll read it and you'll get it. She is appearing to be this wonderful, loving bird mother and has none of the cares of the responsibility of actually sitting on the egg until it's hatched. 
But Horton comes along, and he's like, I do what I say, and I say what I do. Right? Some of you remember this. You've read this maybe to your kids or grandkids a hundred times. Well, Horton, he says, an elephant's faithful 100%. Maybe that's a lame, shallow example, but what Paul is saying here is those that seem like they have some of the appearance, the trappings, the outer workings of what is important and significant, and they don't have the power behind it, they don't have the responsibility attached to it, they don't have the adequate or correctly ordered and rightly guided loves, avoid them. If we can put it in language today, Paul is telling Timothy to have nothing to do with what, be might, what might be called religious sinners or any other adjective attached to the word Christian. Paul was telling Timothy to, to avoid them, to, to have nothing more to do with them. Let me clarify. He's not telling them to unilaterally excommunicate them. This is not cancel culture in the first century or just passively turn some holy cold shoulder to them and maybe they'll get the point. But as he's detailed through this specific letter, through 2 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, he said, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach them, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He's given that process. He said, be patient. This church that Paul and Timothy have been working with is probably 15 years in. He's warned every step along the way, there will be wolves in sheep's clothing. What do you do with wolves? You can't let them fester in the flock. And then here, in verse 5, he concludes with what must have been a very patient and lengthy process to arrive at the 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 conclusion, the warning to Timothy, to avoid such people. It seems like he's applying the Matthew 18 principle if he was specifically going through those steps, he's at least got the heart towards that with a lot of wisdom, prudence, and discernment in order to protect his flock, the sheep from these wolves, but more specifically, to show the truth of the gospel to these wolves that are harming others. See, here's the underlying truth here. For God, appearances don't impress him They don't equal any holy standing, how we dress, where we work, what's our 40K invested in. Those don't add to our resume in front of God. But the exact logical inverse makes sense if we not deny, but if we understand and apply the power of the gospel, then what is going to be the fruit? What's going to be the result? Not perfect, fixed-up, automatic appearances, but our heart's going to be drawn and called and desire to obey, which looks like godliness. In other words, look just at that phrase. If we have the appearance of godliness but deny its power, if we switch both of those and say, I want to love the power of the gospel, then I'm going to live a godly life. That's exactly the pattern that Paul has been giving Timothy. Going back to the previous passage in the end of chapter 2, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
And that looks like godliness. Here the point that he's getting at is the power behind our lives, the power behind living a holy, upright, and God-honoring life. It's not us fixing the facade. It's not us uh, painting the fruit so they're nice and shiny, the, the workings, the trappings, the way we serve or the way we volunteer or the way we do. It's him saying, Paul saying, address our hearts. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel that changes lives, that brings death to life, that brings hearts of stones to hearts of flesh. Then we will see the evidence of true godliness and witness the power of the Holy Spirit. And godliness begins with adoration for God. That will be the first fruit of the power of godliness. So let me ask another application question. How's our heart doing at this point of the warning? Where do I see myself in some of these warnings? Where do I see maybe not me as a wolf, but maybe do I see the the itching ears behind some of these these things? I'm drawn to people that seem to want good, or I'm drawn to people that seem to care about these other things. What areas do you rely on? Maybe the outer more than the inner, the, the appearance more than the heart. How do we possibly deny the power of God at work and look to the fruit more than the root? In case that doesn't hit home yet, let's keep moving. In verse 6 through the end, Paul aims to show Timothy what the tactics of some of these false teachers are. What do they look like? How do we notice them? Because we can't see the hearts of men. We can't see into their motives and their desires and what their loves are and how they're maybe disordered or misguided. So what do they do? Here's the harsh part. That they, among them, these false teachers that will come times of difficulty, among them are those, in verse 6, who creep into households and capture weak women. What's their tactic? What's their method? They creep and capture. They're not, in other words, they're not up front. They're not showing what their purpose and plan is. They're trying to be sneaky. And what's the problem? Who are their victims? In this case, we're going to get hung up on the fact that Paul just called women weak. That's not what he's doing. There's two layers that I want to make sure we get so that we don't get misguided by that. First of all, the word he uses that English translates into weak is actually closer to maybe naive, gullible, or idle. And the fact that in the context, Paul has already called out the elders, the leaders, the teachers in the church to take care of that exact group. If there are those that not necessarily weak physically, but if there are those that are in their households, and they're naive or gullible, the elders are supposed to care for them in a community, in the healthy relationship, not to subtly, sneakily attack them. And secondly, this group happens in households. They sneak or creep into households. This is exactly where those uh, church plants happened in the first century. The 
church in Ephesian, or Ephesus, sorry, would have been planted in a household. It would have been planted probably like uh, Philippians with, a, with Lydia in a household that was wealthy enough to have a room big enough for the gathering place to happen. So in this context, this isn't just some sideline venue where other bad things are happening. This is in the very household where the church, the people of God are growing. In other words, these false teachers are being very tactical with their guidance. They're trying to get exactly who will be swayed by their evil. How did they do this? What are they doing? They're sneaking in. They're creeping into households and capturing weak women. This exact verb set to creep and capture is what Paul used right in the previous section when he said that they may escape their senses, sorry, escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. The snare and the capture of the devil is exactly what these false teachers are doing to the naive and gullible. They teach the appearance of godliness, but left out any gospel power to actually change hearts and revive new affections. Why is this a warning? Because these women in the households, they are the ones burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. They are the very ones that the elders of this church should be comforting, should be nurturing, should be coming alongside and encouraging, not sneaking into their lives and trying to convince them of something other than biblical truth. And what's the result? In verse 7, Paul says, they always are learning and never, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They've always got new information. They've always got the latest and greatest whatever or this other doctrine that we never knew about, but now we finally discovered it. But they're not able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. What is Paul hinting at here? He's used this word, the knowledge of the truth, a number of different times. The closest in context is what he just said in 2.25 when he said, God may perhaps grant them repentance. What does repentance lead to? It leads to a knowledge of the truth. The false teachers are coming in and saying, you don't need repentance, you just need this new version of knowledge. It'll be good enough for you. It'll satisfy your need to know. It'll you know, help you understand whatever thing you think you want. You don't need repentance. You don't need the power of the gospel. Just learn this. Digest this. Read this. Listen to this new podcast. And the problem is, without repentance and belief, the knowledge of the truth is never there. We might have lots of information. They teach an appearance of godliness, void of repentance and the power of the gospel. If I can put this into today's context and then wrap up with a few more application questions. I think in our case today, the creeping and capturing might not look like false teachers sneaking into our homes, probably not knocking on the door going, hey, I got something to sell you. But it might look like other more subtle ways. What do we invite in often that shapes our thinking and shapes our desires 
shapes our loves, oftentimes it's the music, the movies, the media, the podcasts, what we scroll through. And sadly, the way that we do that is a very passive, undiscerning method. They don't need to sneak and creep because we're not thinking. We don't have our radar up like the Brians that everything we think, everything that passes through our minds are brought to Scripture to see what the truth of God's Word has to bear on that. Our social media feeds, the algorithms that are built into how we scroll, reward negative, ungodly characteristics. They're void of discernment. The fact-finding research that's too easily be done, we can Google anything and find 18 zillion hits for that in 0.3 milliseconds. Don't allow us to go through the process of discernment with wisdom to see what is right and true and good. And so we're being captured, maybe not by formal heresies, but today, believers are lured away by influencers who want to gather a following. They're tracking our likes and thinking that's a better message that will sell more. And rather than seeing the rich and free glory of the gospel and the freedom from the burden of sins, our brothers and sisters are being given shallow coping mechanisms. Maybe it looks like better vacations, the newest technology, holistic treatments that can amplify issues while alleviating symptoms. Rather than redirecting our heart's passion to holy pursuits, false teachers give reasons to rationalize sinful passions excuse it away, everyone's doing it, it's not a big deal, it doesn't affect anybody else. All of these categories that self-love, money love, pleasure love, not just only affects my heart, but everybody around us, and especially us in community. Or even the reasons to deconstruct our faith through cynicism, rather than what Paul is aiming at here, with the warning to be assured that God's people will stand. So the result, if we can get to that, I didn't want to miss verse 8 and 9. The same tactics that Paul says that were used by these false teachers, they're nothing new. Moses' false teachers in his day, the two magicians that there aren't named in the Old Testament, but Paul uses tradition to name them Janus and Jambres, go back to Exodus 7, 8, 9. They tried to play the same tricks that Moses, they thought they were tricks, that Moses was doing. First, before the plagues even started, Moses laid down the this, this, this staff, right? You remember what happened? It turned to a serpent. These two magicians thought, oh, I've seen this one. Yeah, I remember my magician's book. I'll flip back to page 83. That's what you do. Here we go. There's my staff. There's a serpent. You remember what happened to that serpent? What did Aaron's staff do? It ate it. Clear sign 
to anybody that might be noticing, huh, those snakes don't usually do that. Something's different here. In case they didn't miss that, the plague of the flood, uh, the blood turning the Nile River to blood, the first plague, Moses and Aaron touched the water with their staff. The magicians tried the same thing, and they could do it, but only to an extent. The second plague with frogs, Moses called frogs up out of the river, and the magicians could do it, but only to a certain extent. The third plague with gnats, or some translations call it lice. I think that's way worse, so we're going to go with lice. Moses and Aaron called out gnats or lice across the land. The magicians, you remember what they said? Janus and Jambres, the false teacher. This is beyond us. These lice must be the very fingers of God at work. We can't do this. Moses and the plagues continued, remember? After the, the couple more plagues, the magicians come back to Pharaoh and they've got boils covering all of the Egyptians' body. Don't need to go into any detail on that one, but pretty harsh. And the magicians, you remember what they say? We can't, we can't touch this one. I mean, they want to. They want to scratch all of them. But they can't. They can't go anywhere close to that. They can't come through because they only have appearances. They have no power in the gospel or in the law, the word of God to affect the hearts of men. What does Paul say about that? Those men opposed the truth. They were corrupted in their mind, not just in their thinking, but how they thought reality worked, and they were disqualified regarding the faith. Why? They didn't believe repentance was an option or even necessary. But Paul's insurance there, his encouragement for us today, the encouragement that tags onto this really heavy warning, they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all, as was that of the two men. Can you imagine Moses and Aaron coming back to Pharaoh? It only took five times, and the other magicians were scratching every square centimeter, because they used the metric system back then, of their body. Their folly was clearly plain to everyone. The magicians had no power, only an appearance. Why is this an, an encouraging part of this warning for us? Because Paul's assuring Timothy. He said he's been there with tears. Paul left the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 with tears. He's wept over this flock. He doesn't want to see more wolves come in. He wants to see the power of of the gospel take root in men and women, children's lives, in grandparents, in friends, in coworkers. He wants to see the power of the gospel root in their hearts and that for to bring repentance and repentance to grow faith and faith to grow obedience. He wants to see the purpose of the Lord especially contrasted to the folly of fools but in giving this assurance, their folly will be plain. They will not get very far. He's telling Timothy, your efforts are always going to stand. Because the power of the gospel was not something that originated in you, Timothy. You didn't conjure up. You didn't have the staff. You didn't do the, the magical whatevers 
to get stuff to grow. It was the power of the Spirit working through you. So the power of the Spirit is going to take over. It's going to ev- take everyone's heart where the Lord is calling them. It's going to be what renews and restores. It's going to be what drives them to their knees in repentance. And it's going to be what is put on display in these last times, especially when they're times of difficulty. Y'all have seen that. This week has been one of them. You have seen the power of the gospel when things are hard, when situation and especially people are difficult. What does the power of the gospel do? It brings humility. It brings love of neighbor. It restores and redeems. It doesn't shun and quarrel. It allows for kindness, not slander. It helps me open my heart to the grieving, not compare. It allows the power of the Holy Spirit to nurture and comfort. These are beautiful things that Timothy has seen, and he's going to drive that home in the next section, 316, where we get to see that Scripture is the work that we have and the power of the Holy Spirit is working in and through that. Let me wrap up with the application questions. What do we do with warnings? What do we do with this warning? Where did this bring our hearts? Where did this drive our thoughts? Maybe some of our motives. If we were to notice some of these 19 characteristics going on around us, how would we approach that? If I were to look in the mirror this afternoon, what would I do with those misguided loves? Loving anything else other than primarily loving God. How do we use that as a group to reflect, repent, refine our loves? Where do we go for truth? What source of truth do I hold up? Do we hold up? Do I lead my family and do we lead our friends in as the source of truth, the knowledge of the truth, not a truth, not someone else's truth, not your truth, the truth? Where do I go for that? Are the places that I allow into my thoughts to shape my thinking Are they refined by Scripture, or am I passive in doing that? Maybe the movies I'm watching, the advertisements that come on during whatever things, the the scrolling I do, am I too passive? Do I need to maybe do a little more discernment and a little less vegging or binge-watching or whatever we call it? Where is the power of the gospel that refines me and leads me in holiness and godliness? And do I trust? Do I trust God that false teachers that just like Janice and Jambres didn't get very far, that false teachers won't get very far? Do I trust God that he is the one building, protecting, and providing for his church? And do I use that trust to 
actively engage in those levels? To pray, to protect, to persevere in times of difficulty, to say something when I can, to say it in a gracious, kind, loving, and wise way when I'm able. I hope that whatever the conclusion that you have thought through, maybe go back and read some of these. Be encouraged the way that you see the power of the gospel refining your hearts. Lean more into those opportunities, into those paths. But see that God has assured his church the gates of hell will not stand because the power of gospel, the power of the gospel is not something derived in man. It's the Holy Spirit that is doing his work in and through us. And on that rock, we will always stand. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is glorious. And I pray as we've looked at this passage that it would become a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That we can see more clearly the truth of the gospel that leads us to repentance, grows our hope in our belief, our trust in you, and that urges us, requires us, and empowers us to obedience. And Lord, I pray that we take this away from here today, not put it away as just something that happened in these last few minutes, but something that we get to live by through the power of your Spirit working in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.